All right, my pals, we are in 2 Samuel 20, and this is actually going to wrap up the story of David's life. There's going to be a few more chapters after this, but they're kind of uns. They're out of the the time of the story. Um, there's some summaries. There's a psalm. There's other stuff going on, uh, but they're not placed into the kind of narrative flow of one event leading to the next event. So this chapter is really going to wrap up the books of Samuel and going to conclude this book that's about the foundation of the kingdom from the prophet Samuel to the king Saul to the second and great king David revolving around the giving of the Davidic covenant where God promised that one of David's sons is going to sit on the throne forever and then some tests of God's faithfulness to that promise in the midst of David's sin, followed by the sin of Absalom, his son. So this is the book in a nutshell. And we're going to wrap up the story and then have some chapters of codex, I think sometimes it's called, or epilogue. And they're important, they're theologically important, but they're out of the one event tied to the next event flow of the history and prepare us for the book of kings which is going to pick up with the death of david and the establishment of the reign of solomon and carry through the entire monarchy of the united kingdom followed by the separated kingdoms and followed by the exile of the final davidic king being taken off to babylon it's all connected but we're learning to read well so we're in chapter 20 and this is really about another attempted civil war that's ended really quickly but in a bad way so chapter 20 starting verse 1 now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was sheba the son of bichri a benjaminite and he blew the trumpet and said we have no portion in david we have no inheritance in the son of jesse every man to his tents o israel okay so if you remember the last chapter ended with the men of judah and the men of israel arguing with each other and the men of judah's words were fiercer then they're trying to own the king now here's this benjaminite and maybe this guy like other benjaminites we've heard about is thinking now the kingship will come back to saul he's the first king and david's a usurper or something like that and so he is going to try to kind of take over israel here but the scripture calls him a worthless man so as soon as we meet him we know that god's not with this guy he's been weighed in the balance and and found wanting and uh, so god's not with him but this event is happening so he tries to lead israel away verse 2 it says so all the men of israel withdrew from david and followed sheba the son of bichri and the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So we do have this division reappearing right away. You know, last chapter, they're like, we're bringing back the king. And we're the first ones to do so. And now there's all this, uh, this conflict again. Things are not stabilized. Verse 3, and David came to his house at Jerusalem. So now he's returned to the castle. So there's been that chased out of uh Jerusalem following going over to the far side of the Jordan now he's come back over the Jordan he's heading back to Jerusalem and the king took this is scripture again the ten concubines who he'd left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but they did but did not go into them they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood so these are these ten concubines that Absalom raped or defiled uh, when he came to Jerusalem as a way of becoming a stink in his father's house. And so there, 
not socially able to be functioning as one of David's wives anymore. And so he uh, essentially puts him in a, a harem. And so uh, this isn't, <laughs> I'm sure, it's hard to read the culture. Do you remember how Tamar, when she was defiled, she ended up going into widowhood essentially? And so there's a bit of an echo here, you know, of uh, Tamar being defiled. So it started with Bathsheba was defiled and Tamar was defiled. And now these concubines are defiled. And just the consequences of these men's sin and it's impacting their family around them and so they're cared for and they're provided for they're not going into exile exile but they're living as in widowhood they don't have a husband anymore verse 4 then the king said to amasa remember he was the general who was serving absalom call them that david set over the armies call the men of judah together to me within three days and be here yourself so amasa went to summon judah but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him and David sent to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take the, your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out from, out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Okay, so here's this thing so amasa has been set out david's honoring his word he's treating him like the leader of the army but for some reason and it's never told us amasa fails to fulfill the king's word to get back in time we don't really know why was it i mean he failed to be obedient we're not sure why and note that david then turns to abishai not joab and sends out abishai there's these three generals abishai joab and amasa and he tries to send out Abishai to go and then do the work. He's trying to avoid Joab. So he's, he's not happy with Joab right now. And then in verse 7, it says that Joab goes out after with these Cherethites and Pelethites and the mighty men. And so we're not even sure if Joab is told to do this. But Joab, um, very likely on his own initiative, is following after Abishai. He refuses to be ignored. Verse 8, when they were at the great stone, that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. He died. Then Joab and Abishai's brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this is a mess again. This is very similar to when Joab assassinated Abner. Again, Joab refuses to not be in charge here. Uh, we're not sure exactly of all the ins and outs. The scripture doesn't tell us, but very likely Joab is um, jealous, uh, refuses the demotion, doesn't trust Amasa, whatever his internal dialogue is. Again, he's being not faithful, but he is being shrewd. Um, so he he's in his military gear he leans forward oops my sword falls out so he's holding his sword in his hand when he greets Amasa because it looks like he just dropped it so this catches Amasa off guard because he hasn't drawn his sword in front of Amasa and make him um, worried what are you going to do with that thing instead he uh, faints dropping it and then goes to uh, greet Amasa and then kills him and so this is a real betrayal again it's not a wartime killing it's um 
it's betraying your brother with a kiss these guys are family members so this is actually like this is a bit of a judas move isn't it it's amasa and joab are brothers and he betrays amasa with a kiss and kills him so this is this is job's got a judas heart and verse 11 so here's amasa just lying on the ground verse 11 and one of Job's young men took his stand by Amasa and said whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David let him follow Joab so he's doing some propaganda right off the bat it's not he doesn't jump up and say you just murdered this guy he says like if you're for Joab and for David you know like if you're for the king follow Joab he's just decided that everybody needs to hear that Joab is serving the king in this even though Joab is just serving himself and this is really interesting remember back in the woods when they found Absalom hanging and Job said if you killed this guy I would have given you um, a reward and the guy's like I don't trust you Joab this is that kind of stuff people know that Job is for Joab and here we see it on display again Verse 12, And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and everyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the men saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. And when he, had taken, when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this uh, propaganda speech about being for Joab, almost like putting it like a, killing Amasa was a good thing, doesn't succeed. And whenever people walk by this body, they're stopping, which is a sign of them like probably mourning or taking note or going like, oh my goodness, like what's just happened here? So in shame, they have to drag the body off into a field, which is again um, a dishonor. They're not burying the body. They just drag it off, off the highway. And, uh, and then just cover them with a garment. So it's not a real burial. So this is, again, an, a sign of the dishonor that's going on here. This isn't a happy ending to the book that David's general just assassinated another one in a dishonorable way. Not good. Verse 14, And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him at Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound of, against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So they followed Sheba. He's gotten to this walled city, just like David feared, and now they're going through all the work of besieging this city. They put up a mound against the wall so you can just scale it. This would be like the, the same as putting ladders, like in the Lord of the Rings, two towers when the orcs come with the ladders. Um, if you don't have enough wood for ladders, which they might not have, then you just carry dirt and start trying to build um, a dirt pile leading up the city wall. And at the same time, they were battering down the wall. So this is, looks like multiple attacks. They're really just besieging the city. Verse 16, Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? So here, here comes this wise woman to sort things out. And this reminds us again this, of the time where Joab solicited a wise woman to go and speak to David uh, to bring Absalom back. And so I think what we're meant to do, among many things, is just hearken back, if you use the word hearken, 
harking back to that time when Joab had manipulated the king with a wise woman going and telling that story to bring Absalom back and, and just ask, like, where did that get everybody? David or Joab's manipulating of the king with this wise woman previously uh, just really led to civil war and to Joab having to assassinate someone again, quote-unquote assassinate. So here we are, Joab speaking with a wise woman, and we're meant to think, I think, um, what's all happened between these times. And and so even wise women who are shrewd and manipulative aren't as good as wise women who are actually good. But this woman comes out and she's saying, hey, think about what you're doing. Um, you're going to destroy an established city in Israel, and the city actually has a reputation for being full of wisdom so why would you want to do this and again this 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 speech impacts even the fact that there was a civil war that just happened and a potentially another one like she is condemning all of the civil warring that's been going on pretty much since the beginning of second samuel there's there was a civil war and then there was the thing with uriah and so she is condemning with her speech the whole idea of israelites destroying israelites here Verse 20, Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. Okay, so he's just murdered somebody and he's saying this. So he's just being political right now. Verse 21, that is not true. But a man of the hill, country of Ephraim, called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against, the, against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out, uh, out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem in the king. So this woman is the hero of this little thing here. Um, Joab reveals that he's just looking for a troublemaker again. And we know that uh, Sheba is the troublemaker because he's called a worthless man at the beginning. And so when he demands him, the woman just says, yeah, we'll, we'll give you his head. And it says she goes to all the people in her wisdom. And so I think because that's the narrator talking that, again, whatever's going on, she's kind of got the thumbs up from the Lord that she is wise and she is saving her people through her wisdom. And I see here like a contrast from David who jeopardized his people with his lack of wisdom, with what happened with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah and bringing Absalom home. He kept having not wisdom and it cost the people. And I think even at the end of this book, there's going to be that story about David doing the census that's going to provoke the wrath of God. So David's lack of wisdom, again, is going to cost the people. But here is a woman who, in her wisdom, is saving her people. Um, she's going to get rid of this worthless guy, and she's going to save her entire city through her wisdom. And then I think this is foreshadowing a bit and looking forward to the day of Solomon through who through whom his wisdom will bless his people and really lift up Israel to the height of its uh, royalty and dominance in its entire history. And so we have this story of this wise woman that's shaming much of the lack of wisdom that's gone before in the story, as well as anticipating the Solomon coming uh, later on in the next story. And everyone goes home. Verse 23, 
And this is going to wrap up the chapter. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So I think we've said it before that when we have these times where who's in charge of what is getting named, it really is a big break in the narrative where it's kind of this is the sign that um, the kingdom has been reestablished or re-solidified. You know who's in charge of what and you just it gives you this sense that the kingdom is now functioning again. So we have this last story of someone attempting division in Israel. They're put down. That, that rebellion is ended by a wise woman of Abel using the sword of a ungood man in Joab. And then we have this summary of who's in charge of what in the kingdom, which is really wraps up this, this section of the life of David. And then we're going to um, have some stories about God's judgment because of uh, blood guilt and some famines and stuff like that. But Everything else in the rest of the book is taken out of uh, chronological time, I think. I think they're more um, theological points, and and I'll explain a bit more, but there's a bit of a chiasm going on. It's going to start with um, an incident of God's wrath. There's going to be a psalm. Then there's going to be the list of the mighty man, and then there's going to be a story again of God's wrath. So that really sets this these last chapters apart from the story that goes before it and the fact that verse or chapter 20 ends with this like who's in charge of what section really is the the end of this part here that's how the bible says the end here is it says these guys are all in charge of different things so end of story boom all right so you've made it through the story of the life of david in first and second samuel and we're going to finish these other chapters, but I think it's a good time to just pause and reflect on David's life, his faith, um, his trials, his exiles, his great victories with uh, Goliath and military victories, his um, the times he escaped from Saul's hand, the civil war he led at the beginning of Samuel, his time in charge of the kingdom, his failure with Bathsheba, his failure with his sons, with uh, rebuking Amnon for what he did to Tamar and for bringing Absalom back uh, even though he wasn't repentant he just wanted to come back but he didn't actually repent and humble himself and all of his acts and just there's this life and remembering that David is actually given to us as a great man of God in the book of Kings it does say that David was a good man and a faithful man except for what happened with Bathsheba and that's not to excuse it at all it was a great sin but his life was still predominantly a life of faith. Just like Abraham uh, was a great man and a man of faith, but he had some real moments of failure. But overall, um, God was with these men and gave them great promises, and the promises endured. And the records of the failures of the saints, um, it's true. This is one of the reasons why I think you can just look at the Bible and say it seems very trustworthy because the heroes have m many warts. If you read stories written about kings by themselves during their time, they they usually don't have like all their failures and warts put on display. And so just the honesty of of David's life really makes you feel like it's being written by God because the narrative loves David and is 
super honest about him and records his failures in a way that doesn't excuse it, it really does make you feel like you're getting the honest truth from a heavenly perspective. And it's also an encouragement for us because these failures are meant to make us long for that son of David that didn't fail like David did and didn't fail like Solomon's going to fail. We long for that son of David that's the Messiah and the true prophet and the true high priest that really does please the Lord without any failure. And it turns our hearts to Christ, who is our great king, who rules over us without any selfishness and never takes any one of us for his own personal pleasure or abuse, but always has just only laid down his life for his people, for his sheep. And the true prophet who always speaks the word of God to us and, and sings to us, just like David was the, a prophet through the Psalms. Jesus is a true prophet. And the high priest, just like David, sometimes uh, offered sacrifices. We're going to actually see him offer sacrifices to appease the wrath of God over the people. Jesus, with his own blood, appeased the wrath of God and saved his people from their sin. And so um, this life of David points us to the life of the son of David who fulfilled everything David started except with perfection. And he's our God and he loves us and we love him too.